We are doing an exposition of Romans 8.13, and we started this series two Sundays ago called Putting Sin to Death. And I, I think it's extremely relevant for every one of us, because all of us have sin that we have to put to death. So, that's where we're going to be. Let's, let's begin just by reading Romans 8, verses 12 and 13, and then we'll stop and ask God's help today. Romans 8, 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Father, we ask that you would give understanding to what you mean in this passage. We especially pray for help to be able to put it into practice. We pray that we would understand how to put sin to death and that this very week, we would start to see victory over sins in our life. Lord, give us grace today. Spirit of God, speak to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, this morning we continue our exposition of Romans 8, verse 13. And last Sunday we, we discovered that verse 13 is actually comprised of five principal parts. There is a duty, a people, a promise, a warning, and a power, all in this verse. Last Sunday, we looked at the promise, the warning, and the people. The promise is that if you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The warning is, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. And the people are you. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, this morning we want to go further, and we want to take the last two parts of this verse, and those two parts are the duty and the power. The duty is we must put sin to death, and the power by which we must do that is by the Spirit. That's what our text tells us. So from last week, we learned that something very, very serious is at stake in putting sin to death, life or death, right? Heaven or hell are at stake. If you follow the road of sin killing, you will arrive in heaven. If you follow the road of indulging in sin, you will arrive in hell. That's how important it is. As John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So today we want to look at the duty of, of, or this this duty in Romans 8.13 and also the power by which we are to accomplish the duty. So first of all, the duty. We are to put to death the deeds of the body. Now, verse 13 says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Did you notice the difference between the first half and the second half. In the first half, he talks about the flesh. In the second half, he talks about the deeds of the body. 
Now, is there any reason why he would switch gears like that? I believe there is. I believe there's a difference between the flesh and the deeds of the body. So what is the flesh? When Paul uses that term, what does he mean by flesh? He's not talking about this stuff. He's talking about a deep inward principle from which our acts and attitudes and thoughts and evil deeds all flow from. Remember two weeks ago we talked about the root of sin? If we got underneath and got to the bottom of all of our sinning, what would we find? And we discovered from Romans chapter 1, we would find that it's a preference for anything other than God. That's the flesh. The flesh is underneath all of these actions of evil that you do. It's, it's what causes them. It's what spews them out of you. It's a principle deep within you that is corrupt and is opposed to God. Now, why do I say all that? Well, look at Romans 8, 7. It says, The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the, fl the flesh is hostile to. It's not just that it's ambivalent or indifferent to God. It's hostile to it. There, there's friction between the flesh and God. It will not subject itself to God or His laws. It's, it's insubordinate. When it comes to God, it will not subject itself to God. Your flesh will not bow down and worship God because it's opposed to God. Now go over to Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 16. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit sets its desire against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So whatever the Holy Spirit wants you to do in your life, your flesh is going to oppose it. And whatever your flesh wants you to do, the Holy Spirit's going to oppose it. So you've got these two forces battling it out constantly in your life. The Holy Spirit who lives within you and this flesh, which is this deep-seated principle of corruption and evil that you inherited from your forefather Adam. It's a virus that he, in <laughs> he injected this virus into the world and it just has flowed through every person except for Jesus Christ. We've all caught the virus and this deep evil principle is within all of us. Amen. It's opposed to the Spirit, and the Spirit's opposed to it. So that's what the flesh is. And the flesh will manifest itself in 10,000 different ways in your life. Look at uh, Galatians 5.19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you. Notice he says, and things like these. This isn't an exhaustive list. <laughs> this is just a sampling of how the flesh manifests itself. He says, just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't that exactly what Paul says? If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. 
If you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying it the same thing in two different ways. So here's the flesh. The flesh manifests itself in all kinds of different evil thoughts, attitudes, actions, and words. But back to Romans 8.13, there's a difference between that and the deeds of the body. Because not every deed of your body is evil. If you have a neighbor who is sick and you make them some chicken noodle soup and take it over to them and pray for them, you don't want to kill that deed of the body because that's a good deed of the body. See, your body is not moral. This is not good or bad. This is skin and blood and bones and muscle. There's nothing intrinsically good or bad about this body. But when my flesh, which is that deep-seated evil principle within me, erupts through the members of my body, that's what I've got to kill. We have to kill the evil deeds that spring forth from the flesh through our bodies. Go over with me to Romans chapter 6. And we'll see this. Romans 6, verse 12 and 13. Paul says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So the members of your body, what are they? Your arm, your hand, your feet, your eyes, right? Your ears, your mouth, your tongue. These members can either be instruments of, of unrighteousness or instruments of righteousness. Right. Either way. Your body's neutral. Yeah. When the flesh is manifesting itself through your body, they will be evil deeds. When the Holy Spirit is manifesting himself through your body, they will be righteous deeds. So what he's saying here in Romans 6 is you have to make the choice whether you're going to allow the flesh to manifest itself or whether you're going to allow the Holy Spirit to manifest himself through you, through your body. Now, I want you to also notice the tense of the verbs in Romans 8, verse 13. He says, For if you are living according to the flesh. What tense is that? You are living. That's the present tense. But if you, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death, what's that tense? No? That's present. Both of them are present tense. If you are living right now, according to the flesh, in the future you must die. But if you are right now putting to death the deeds of the body, in the future you will live. So what's he getting at? In the Greek, when they had a present tense, it means ongoing continual activity. It's not a one-time activity. It's... It's the ongoing. It's continuous. So let's paraphrase it like this. For if you go on habitually living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Holy Spirit you go on habitually putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See? It's not a one-time fall. All of us fall into sin. The true believer gets back up, cleanses himself in the blood of Christ, and begins to work on that sin again. But if you, if you fall into sin and you stay there, you're like a pig 
that returns to the mire or like a dog returning to its vomit. You, you prove yourself to be unregenerate in the end. The person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will not let you stay there indefinitely, wallowing in that filth. The Holy Spirit is holy, and He wants you to be holy, and so He will work in you to become holy. Now, notice also the language here. Violent language. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death, this is graphic, this is violent language, it's not pretty, and I think God uses this kind of language deliberately because he wants, us to, wants to show us how ugly and offensive sin is. Think back to Samuel, who gave a command from the Lord to King Saul. He said, I want you to go and kill all of the Amalekites. The command from God was to kill every single one. The adults, the children, to kill the animals, all of the animals, so King Saul went in, and he killed most of them. He spared the king, King Agag, and he spared some of the best of the sheep because he said, I'm going to offer them to the Lord. Samuel comes along, and he says, Whoa, what is this I hear bleeding in my ear? What is that? And he discovered that, that Saul had not killed Agag, that he spared him, and they hadn't killed all of the sheep. And so... Saul represents the believer who makes a provision for his flesh. He deals with most of them, but he doesn't deal with all of them. And he doesn't take them all the way. Like, he, he allows some prisoners, he kills most of them and then takes a few of them prisoner. It's like the believer who says, I'll let sin go this far, but no further. I'll look at this much porn, but after that, no more. Or I'll take this amount of drugs, but after that I'm not taking any more drugs after that. I'll, I'll, I'll take some prisoners, but I'm not going to really kill it. I'll let it live, but I'm, I've got it under control. You see? And what does Samuel do? He takes out a sword and he hews Agag to pieces. And he's the picture of the believer who deals ruthlessly and violently with sin. Just like Jesus taught us, you have to pluck out your right eye or cut off your right arm. It's better to, than to, to go to heaven with one eye or one arm than to go to hell with both. So Jesus taught us the same principle that the Apostle Paul is teaching us here in Romans 8.13. So it, no, it's not a pretty picture. And really, all human suffering is an illustration of the ugliness and offensiveness of sin to God. The thing is, we look at sin, and we don't see it the same way God does. We look at sin and say, boy, that looks kind of attractive. That's, that's kind of pretty. I, that's alluring. I like that. Well, what part of you likes that? The flesh. The flesh. That's true. The Spirit doesn't. The Spirit hates it. But your flesh is going out after it. To God, God sees it as repulsive and ugly and filthy. Remember the leper who came to Jesus covered in sores, oozing all over the place? That's what we're like in our sin, coming before a holy God. It's offensive to Him. He hates it, and it's ugly. And it was so ugly that sin has caused the death, the physical death, of billions and billions of people. If there were no sin in the world, there would be no death. Amen. Every single person on the planet is going to die because of sin. Amen. Not only that, but sin is ugly, so ugly that it, the only remedy for it was the death of an infinitely worthy sacrifice, the Son of God. And sin is so ugly that the only just response to it is eternal conscious torment 
in hell. That's how bad sin is when God looks at it. We need to get God's perspective. And we won't have such a struggle with it, I think. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us that when we see sin in our life, we have to meet it with a sword. We're not to cuddle up to it. We're to take a sword out and run it through until blood runs out and it becomes lifeless. In other words, we're to take it with blood earnestness, deadly serious about sin. We're to make no truce with it, make no compromise with it, and take no prisoners. We're to fight sin to the death. Have you ever seen those old movies where they have two gladiators in a, a Roman Colosseum? Well, one thing's for sure. Only one of those gladiators is going to walk away because it's a fight to the death. You and I are like gladiators. Sin is our opponent, and only one of us is going to walk away. And we better make sure it's us. That it doesn't kill us. And Paul says this fight will continue your entire life. I don't mean to depress you today, <laughs> but you will have this fight the rest of your life, so you can never let your guard down. You have to be vigilant against that sin that comes against you all of the time. At the very end of Paul's life, he could say in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight. He's talking about fighting against sin. Paul fought the good fight for his entire life. Now, in order to do battle with sin, to fight sin, we have to go to the root. There's no point in snipping off bad fruit and leaving the tree bad. See what I mean? There's no point in making outward moral improvements but leaving the whole sin-producing root system intact. We need to find out what's causing all of these evil actions and starve the root so that we can get rid of the negative and evil fruit from our lives. So we have to slay these sinful deeds by starving the root. And remember, sin is a preference for anything other than God. John Piper has written this, Sin is what we do when our heart is not satisfied with God. Now think about it. I think that's a profound statement. Sin is what we do when our heart is not satisfied in God. We go to this or we go to that. We, we look at sin's promises of pleasure and we believe them and we run after them because we do not believe the promises that God makes are better than what sin promises. You see? So we have to go to the root. And any act, thought, or word that has a root in not treasuring God above all things must be attacked. We must lay the axe to that root. So there we've got the duty outlined for us. Let's talk about the power. How do we do this? How do we put sin to death? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 8.13, we do it by the Spirit. We do it by the Spirit. Remember our illustration of the jumbo jet from last week? A jumbo jet can weigh up to one million pounds. And somehow it still flies. Can you? I mean, I only weigh 170 pounds and I can't fly. <laughs> I'm earthbound. What's the difference? Why can't I fly and that million pound piece of metal can get into the air? Well, there's two things it has to have. Number one, it has to have wings. Because if you take its wings off and race it down the salt, you know, the salt flats at 250 miles an hour, it's still never going to fly. It's got to have wings because those wings allow the air to rush up and lift it into the air. 
I don't have any wings. <laughs> the second thing a plane has to have is an engine. Because you can take any old plane, and it's got wings, but if there's no engine in it, it's never going to get off the ground either. Right. So the wings for that plane, that's, that's your new nature that God gives you when you're born again. He reconfigures you and gives you wings. You can fly now. You have the capability, the possibility of putting sin to death because he's given you the equipment necessary, a new heart, a new nature. But that's not all you need. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the jet engine to propel you down the runway to get you going fast enough so you can get into the air. Okay? The Holy Spirit's the jet engine. Yeah, that's right. Now, how do we get that jet engine revving at maximum capacity? In other words, how do we walk by the Spirit? That's what we need to learn. We've got the wings, but we need to get going. <laughs> we need the engine to propel us. Well, let's take a look at a few texts that can help us with this. First of all, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now notice several things from this text. Number one, who's Paul writing to in verse 12? Yeah, and how do we know that? What words does he use? My beloved. He's writing to my beloved. That's a code word, a code phrase for Christians. And we know that it's Christians because chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So he's not writing to lost people. He's writing to people like you and me. Second observation, he tells them to work out their salvation. He says in verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He does not say work for your salvation. He's not saying work really hard in order to get saved. They were already saved, right? They're already saints. He's telling them to work it out like a math problem where you got to work it out to find the ultimate conclusion of the problem. He says your salvation has begun, but work it out to its ultimate conclusion. What does he mean by that? He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about growth and holiness, growth in your spiritual life, putting sin to death. That's what he's talking about. So he's writing to believers. He's talking about growth and holiness. Third observation is he says, do it with fear and trembling. Now, we live in an age in America, in the 21st century, where those words don't make any sense to us because of the culture of Christianity in our nation. It's frivolous. It's light. It's not serious. I want you to compare the culture of American Christianity with, with Bible Christianity. Okay? If there is a difference between the two, we're the ones that are wrong, not the Bible. The Bible says, work it out with fear and trembling. There are some things we should not be afraid about, and there are some things we should. We should be afraid of God. The Bible commands us over and over and over to fear God. Of course, that doesn't mean to cower in fear because we think He's going to condemn us. If we're justified, we know that He loves us. But it, there is a real sense of having a fear, a deep reverential awe of this mighty God that we serve. Amen. So we are to fear God. 
But here we're told that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And I believe what he means is be afraid and tremble that you do not miss heaven, that you do not miss eternal life. If you follow the broad way, you're going to end up at destruction. I don't care if you call yourself a Christian or not. I don't care if you go to church or not. If you're going down that way, which is living according to the flesh, you're not going to the right destination. You're going to end up in hell. I don't care if you've answered a Billy Graham altar call, raised your hand. None of that matters at all. What matters is life. Do you have the life of God in your soul, which results in holy living, putting sin to death? Those are evidences of the Holy Spirit. So fear and trembling, lest we miss the mark, lest we have somehow claimed to be something that we're not, that it's just a farce, that the whole thing's a facade, that we're hypocrites, that we're not true Christians at all. So work it out. Be serious about this and be afraid and tremble. And then the fourth observation is the resources we have to do this. Verse 13 tells us why. Because it's God who is at work in you. Just stop and just think about that line. For it is God who is at work in you. Believe that right now. God is at work in you. Who's at work in you? God. Who's he? He's the Almighty. Oh, man. I mean, take a look at the universe at night. Look up at the stars. He made all that. He is at work in you. What resources you and I have, brothers and sisters, to overcome sin? Man, for it's God who is at work in you for two things, both, number one, to will, number two, to work for his good pleasure. I could paraphrase it like this giving us the desire and the power to please Him. God is at work in you, and He does it in two ways. Changing your desires and giving you power to please Him. So brothers and sisters, if we live in sin, we cannot claim, nothing I could do to stop that one. Boy, I was just helpless against that sin. Wait a minute. God's at work in you. Is, is God just a weakling that sin is able to beat up and clobber and leave for dead? Who's stronger, your sin or God? Come on now, let's, let's, let's own up to the fact that if we sin, it's because we made a choice to give in to the flesh rather than to submit ourselves to the Spirit of God who dwells in us. So those are the resources. We kill sin by the Spirit. We've got to depend upon His power, obey His promptings, and cultivate His desires. Now, let's go back to Romans 8.13. We still need more help to figure out exactly how to do this. And I think we're going to get some help. Verse 13 talks about the flesh and the spirit. Okay? Back up to verse 5 and 6. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Do you see any correlation between verses 5 and 6 and verse 13? The first correlation is that flesh and Spirit are both mentioned in each place. Second one is that At the first part of verse 6, he says, The mind set on the flesh 
is what? Death. What does he say in the verse, first part of verse 13? If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. Do you see the correlation? Look at the second part of verse 6. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Now look at the second part of verse 13. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, he is amplifying what he has just said in verses 5 and 6, and he's opening it up and giving you further information about that very same thing in verse 13. Now, that gives us some help, because that tells us that the way we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body is explained in verses 5 and 6. And the way we do that is by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. To put to, sin to death by the Spirit is to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Are you making the connection with me? I hope so. This is really important that you see that verse 5 says, those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Well, what does it mean to set your mind on the things of the Spirit? It means to kill sin by the Spirit. Okay. Now he mentions the things of the Spirit in verse... That phrase only comes up one other place in the Bible, the things of the Spirit. And it comes up in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. So let's go there to find out what he means by setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. Okay? So go over to your right a few, few pages. Look at verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually appraised. There's our phrase. Now what does he mean there? By the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man doesn't accept them. Who's the natural man? In the yeah, the person who's in the flesh, not in the Spirit. Means he's unregenerate. He does not possess the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's an unsaved person. That person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Well, what are those things? Back up to verse 13 and look at the context. Verse 13 says, Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. Now, put those two verses together, see it in its context, and do you see what the things of the Spirit are in verse 14? You're going to have to think this morning. Put your thinking cap on. I'll read it again. Verse 13. Which things we also speak. So the, the apostles, when they spoke and when they preached and when they taught, they taught not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. So the things of the Spirit of verse 14 are the words of the apostles that they taught by the Spirit in verse 13. What are those words of the Spirit that the apostles taught? The New Testament Scripture. So, to set your mind on the things of the Spirit means to set your mind on specific words from the apostles that we have given to us in the New Testament Scriptures. Okay? Now we're getting a little ways towards this understanding of how to put sin to death. The Word of God is going to play a vital role 
in your battle against sin. Now, we should have expected that because when the Apostle Paul talks about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, he lists all these pieces of armor that we're supposed to put on, right? We've got a helmet, and we've got a breast piece, and a belt, and sandals. But there's only one piece of armor that actually kills something. What is it? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We should have expected all along that that's how we're going to kill sin. It's by the Word of God that we're going to do it. Now, one more piece that will help, I think, put this all together. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 5. Galatians 3, 5. Paul says, So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's the correct answer? Hearing with faith. Why does he say hearing? Did New Testament believers have a copy of the scriptures? Like we do, they carry around a Bible? They didn't have one. He couldn't have wrote by reading with faith because they, a lot of them were illiterate to begin with and even the ones that were literate didn't have a copy. The New Testament wasn't even completed yet. All they would have had was the Old Testament and maybe snatches of the New. And they didn't have copies anyway. They're extremely expensive. You might have one copy for a whole church. So he says... How does it happen? How does, how does he do miracles among you and provide the Spirit to you? Is it by working real hard to try to obey the law? Or is it by hearing with faith? And of course, the obvious answer is it's by hearing with faith. So as those New Covenant Christians, and remember, they were just like us. They met in homes. I imagine a group of them like this, 30 or 40 people crammed into a house. The Apostle Paul comes and he teaches them. They're hearing, and if they hear with faith, Paul says the Spirit is supplied to them. And he starts working miracles among them, but it takes faith in Scripture, faith in the Word of God, which is coming through the Apostles according to 1 Corinthians 2.13. Now, do you kind of see the pattern that Paul is developing here? I have always kind of in the back of my mind had the assumption that, well, if you if you want to grow in holiness, you're just going to have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, make some decisions, and and by your, your determination, you're going to stop sinning. Well, that's not how Paul puts it. He talks about hearing with faith. He talks about doing battle with the Word of God. See, here's what I've come down to. It's not just that we say no to sin, although we do that. That's only part of the, the puzzle. We also say yes to the specific promises of God's Word that claim more for us than the promises of sin do. What's going to break the power of sin's temptation in your life? Only the power of a new and greater affection. If I told you, you know, man, man, I just love Salisbury steak. I just love it. I'm tempted to eat it whenever I see it. And then you, you came over to my house and you brought some food, but instead of bringing Salisbury steak, you brought some Jamocha almond fudge ice cream. Okay? 
I've got a choice to make. Yeah, I do like the steak over there, but I really like this ice cream. It's not going to be hard for me to say no to that sin because the promise of what's over here is way better than the promise of this over here. You see, and the way we get to that point is through faith, hearing with faith. It comes down to the point where your sanctification is rooted in faith and the sin that you commit is rooted in unbelief. Say, are you sure, Brian? Can you substantiate that with the Bible? I can. I can do that. Go to Acts chapter 26. And pick it up with me in verse 16. Here, the risen Lord Jesus gives Paul a commission. He says in verse 16, But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Sanctified by faith in me. Sanctified by what? Faith. Your faith plays a vital role in your sanctification. That's not the only place where Paul tells us that. He also tells us that in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Listen to this, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. How does sanctification come? By the Spirit and by faith in the truth. You've got the Spirit and you've got the faith, and when they come together, you have sanctification taking place. Okay. Another passage you need to consider is Colossians 2, verse 6. Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Him, so walk in Him. Well, how did they receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By faith. They repented of their sin, and they put their faith in Jesus Christ. How was a person converted to begin with? What, what are the things they must do to be saved? They must repent and believe. Folks, how does a person get sanctified? How do they grow in holiness? They repent and they believe. It's not like the secret to growing in holiness is something that you discover after many years of being a disciple and you finally discover it way down the line and it's this deep mystical thing. No, it's the very same. The key is right at the door. <laughs> it's the very same way we got saved. That's the way we are sanctified. Repentance and faith. Amen. It's like a, a socket. I don't... <laughs> Here we go. There's a socket. Well, you... I don't know if you can see it over there, but you know what a socket is. And you take an electrical cord and you stick it into it. When you take like a vacuum cleaner cord and you stick it into the socket, the electricity starts flowing into the vacuum cleaner, giving it power to do what it was unable to do before. The spirits like the electricity that 
socket is like the Word of God, and when you take your faith and plug it into the socket of the Word, the promises of God, the power of the Spirit is released to produce in your life sanctification. It takes the Word, and it takes faith, and the Spirit works. Galatians 3.5 He who supplies the Spirit, how does He do it? He supplies the Spirit through hearing with faith. Hearing the Word by faith. Let me give you a specific example. Hopefully this will make it more concrete. And you know, I've just decided this last week, this is going to be a longer series than I thought, because I want to take specific sins that all of us deal with and show us how we put them to death with promises from the Word. And I hope this will be really practical for you. Like if you struggle with worry, or bitterness, or unforgiveness, or I don't know, I'm just going to come up with a list of maybe seven or eight of these sins and and show how by... Faith in the promises of God, we can put those sins to death in our life. So let's just take one of them. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. There's the duty described. Being, And that means to be content with what you have. And then semicolon... And the word for. Folks, look for words like for and because and therefore and however, those connecting words, because they're going to tell you an awful lot about how to interpret a verse. This verse is going to give you the reason why you can make be content with what you have and be free from the love of money. Why is it? For he himself has said, here's a word from God, a specific promise from God, right? Here it is. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So, the author of Hebrews doesn't tell you just be free from the love of money. He tells you how to take out the sword and run it through that temptation to love money. Now let's stop and just ask ourselves, what does it mean to love money? Over in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, the literal is, uh, that the love of money is a root of all evil. That's how it's literally spelled out in the Greek. The love of money is a root of all evil. Well, wait a minute. How can love of money be the root of all evil? Is my sin of swearing the result of loving money? It doesn't make any sense to me. But let's back it up a little bit. Let's get underneath what it means to love money. Well, what is money? Let's start there. Is the love of money just admiring green pieces of paper or just enjoying the pleasure of feeling the gold and silver trinkets in my fingers? Is that the love of money? Money is what you, it's a symbol of what you can trade to get what man can offer you. What man can do for you, what man can make for you. It's the symbol of the human resources. Jesus said you can't serve God and money. <coughs> so the love of money is pinning your hope on or putting your trust in or banking your future on what man can do for you. Money. Why is that the root of all evil? Because it ignores God. <coughs> it no longer is pinning your hope on God and His resources and what God for, can do for you. It's not looking to the pleasures that God can grant to you. It's looking for what sin or what man can do for you now in this life. That's good. So he says, 
Put to death the love of money. And how do we do it? We do it with the promise that the Lord will never desert us and the Lord will never forsake us. Okay, so you're tempted with loving money. You find yourself drawn, wanting what man can give you. How do you fight that temptation? You go to the promises of the Word of God. Hey, if the Lord will never desert me, do I believe that or not? If He's never going to forsake me, why am I so tripped out on having to have more and more and more money? (laughs) No matter where I'm at or what I'm doing or what stage of life I'm in, God is going to supply my needs. I don't have to be engrossed in what man can do for me. I need to be looking to what God can offer me and His resources. And so believing this word frees you from that temptation to see the superior worth of what God can give you. So what I want you to see is simply this. The sanctification is a matter of believing the promises of the word are more satisfying than the promises of sin. This is where the struggle is. This is where the fight is. Because in the moment of temptation, you feel that that sin is better than what God offers you. And is that the truth or is that a lie? That's a lie. And if you believe the lie, you're like a fish that clamps onto that worm and you're sunk, you're dead. You have to recognize the lie. You have to go to the promises of the word and you need to preach them to yourself. You need to remind yourself, this is the truth, not that. I need to believe this. And you will find in your experience when you believe this, it frees you from the dominion of those temptations and lusts which are coming against you. So sanctification is a matter of believing the truth. And when you do that, you say no to sin, but you're saying yes to God and yes to His Word. So I have an assignment for you this week. We're going to make this more practical in the weeks to come, but the assignment that I have for you this week is when you are tempted to do something that is coming from the flesh rather than the Spirit. I want you to stop, and I want you to find a promise from God's Word that will do battle against that temptation. And then I want you to begin saying it to yourself, meditating on it, repeating it in your mind until you believe it. That's where the struggle is going to be. Now, if you give in and give up and say, I'm not going to do that's just too much work, you're going to fall into sin. That's why it's easy to fall into sin and it's hard to live a holy life because we have to battle. We have to take out the sword and we have to use it in our battle against sin. So that's your assignment. That's my assignment. It's all of our assignment because we will deal with sin in our life this week. May God give us grace. Father, please, we, we, we beg of you, Lord, to help us in this fight against sin because we know that we, there's much in our life that is not pleasing to you. We want to be pure and holy before you, Lord. So, Lord, we pray that we would have the vigilance to search your word for those promises that will tell us that you are more for us in Christ, you're better to us in Christ than any sin Satan can offer us. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.